looking at chapter 1, and just by way of reference, the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittite, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The story of Jonah is one of those stories that sticks out with, out of the scriptures. It's one we are familiar with. It's a favorite of the Sunday school teacher and for those who take children's meetings. For those of us who attended Sunday school and children's meetings, it is a story we have grown up with, one that we are familiar with. And yet, there is a message, a deep message contained within the account and the story of Jonah. For some, it's just a children's story. For some, it's a legend. For some, it is uh, put in the same category as they would the parables that Jesus spoke on his earthly ministry. But yet, we're made very much aware that it's not so. For Jesus, the reference uh, of him, made for him in Matthew chapter 12, in which he identifies with Jonah, in which he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish's belly, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth. And by that reference, it wipes away all doubt, all uncertainty. Jonah is not a fixed character. It's not a work of fiction. It's reality. The life he lived, the path he trod, the experiences he had were all real. And while some may use it to preach the gospel, others a message to the backslider, yet the book of Jonah has a particular message, and it's a message to the Christian church. And it's a message that I want us to try and grab hold of tonight. It's not a matter of do you know the story of Jonah? Can you recite it, getting all the events in the right order? But a matter of do you know the message presented in the book of Jonah? So often we hear words, but the question is, do we understand what is being said? This was a problem even Jesus had. We're made aware in St. John chapter 7, the report of those who heard Jesus speaking, in which they reported to the religious leaders, no man ever spoke like this man. And yet Jesus had to appeal to his audience, as Matthew and Luke record for us, and appeal to them when he said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit would say unto him. We may view the story of Jonah as one we are so familiar with. But you know, I praise God that his book, his word, is a living word. We can read it a year, a year from now, and it can tell us something new, something fresh. There's always something fresh when we come with the right attitude, with the openness of, of heart and mind, and we say, Holy Spirit, show me. And as we come tonight, I'll not keep you too long. As we come tonight... Let us be open to what God would say unto us. Jonah, many judge him, but let's not judge him tonight. 
But let us with an open mind approach, be open, be open to hear what God would say unto us. Jonah, a man on the run. Jonah the man, well, from 2 Kings chapter 14, we are made aware that Jonah was a servant and a prophet of the Lord. His name means dove, the silent dove of them that are afar off. Jonah, that is the book, stands fifth among the writings of the twelve minor prophets. The book of Jonah is perhaps the best known of these. The book of Jonah is not so much a prophetic writing as the, the only prophetic utterance contained within its, pa its pages are found in chapter 3 and verse 4, in which it says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But rather, it is a revelation he himself gives us of his own faults and follies. It is easy to point the finger at Jonah, but remember, when we point one finger at him, there's three pointing back at us. Jonah is a man to be commended. He is honest. He is truthful. He is upfront. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to talk himself out of situations. He doesn't make excuses for him. He tells it as it is. Jonah puts the hands in the air, guilty as charged. But yet, God used him and God worked through him. That's one thing we want to grab hold of tonight. Man with all his feelings and shortcomings, yet God can do a work in each and every man's life. He writes nobody off. When we are open to him, when we are obedient to him, he can do tremendous things through us. Jonah the man, Jonah his commission. The Lord said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. Jonah, who was he? It seems he just appeared on the scene. We have no knowledge of his early days or what he was involved in. What we do know, as the writer in Kings tells us, he was a prophet of the Lord. So therefore we can safely assume that he was 30 plus, for it was at the age of 30 you entered the prophetic channels. It was at that age when a man was thought to be of maturity and understanding. Jonah, I would suggest to you, had a proven record. For God would not have called him, God would not have used him for such a task had he not had a relationship with God and a proven track record. I would suggest to you that the years that we are not uh, presented with detail of were years of proving, of testing, of building up a relationship with God. Jonah knew the voice of God. God spoke to Jonah. Jonah spoke to the people. There was a rapport between Jonah and his maker, God, and a rapport between Jonah and the people whom he ministered to. Jonah was in his comfort zone. He was happy with his lot. He was content where he was. He was familiar with his daily routine. And yet God spoke to him one day. I thought I was just thinking this afternoon, no, Jonah maybe got up that morning and he says, I'll go and have a chat with God. And he was expecting something along this normal lines, God telling him, Jonah, I want you to tell the people such and such. And when he went that morning, God says, I've no message for the people, but I've one for you. 
I want you to arise and go to Nineveh. God, in giving him that commission, was endeavoring, I believe, to stretch him, to give him a new experience, to lead him into a new area of ministry and service. But Jonah didn't see it that way. Jonah saw him. God telling him to go to Nineveh was dropping a bombshell on his doorstep. His normal routine, his normal life was going to be disrupted. It wasn't going to be the same again. And he was filled with fear and dread. And so Jonah, instead of responding as he normally did under normal circumstances when God spoke to him, he went off the rails and he went the opposite way. Jonah's commission, the Lord said to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. There was no warning. There was no building up to it. There was no God says, well, if something special I want you to do, and over a period of time I'll let you get used to the idea before I drop it on you. But God just dropped it as it was. And Jonah was shocked, to say the least. But let's look at the place, Nineveh, to which he was to be sent. The city, it was founded by Nimrod shortly after the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel and was therefore 1,000 years old. It was a great city in the mightiest monarchy in the world. Its walls, the circumference of the walls of the city was 60 miles long. It had streets and avenues within its walls of 20 miles long. The walls were a hundred feet high and at the top were so thick that three chariots could easily race abreast round the top of it. Its population was estimated to be in the region of 600,000. One may judge the size of the population from the statement in Jonah 4 and 11 which says Nineveh's innocent population that is children not old enough to know the difference between their right hand and their left hand was 120,000. Nineveh, a great city but it was also great in wickedness and that wickedness had come up to the throne of God. Jonah's commission Jonah's disobedience. Instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah fled to Tarshish. At least he tried to. But he was going to get nowhere. For as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 139, if I take the wings of the morning and ascend to the highest place, if I descend to the lowest part of the sea, if I go to the furthest extremities of the earth, you are there. Jonah was trying to run away from God. He was trying to deal with an impossible situation. One commenting regarding Jonah says, He arose like a pigeon let loose in a strange place, performed the circle of indecision, then darted off in the wrong direction. One may ask why. A man who had a track record, a proven track record, one who was familiar with God, with the voice of God, one who was familiar with obeying the directions given by the voice of God. Why, on this occasion, he should do what was the very opposite to his normal situation. The task was big, yes, for in chapter 3 and verse 3 of Jonah, we're told to walk across the center of the city would take three days. But why did Jonah 
run. Was he afraid of being mocked? We are reminded, are we not, of the situation when the angels came to Lot in Sodom and they told Lot of the judgment that was about to fall upon the city. Lot sent word to his daughters and son-in-laws warning them to flee, but they laughed at them. Was he afraid that this would happen to him? Was he afraid maybe that after 40 days, if God didn't do what he said he was going to do, then he would be viewed as the prophet that got it wrong? Was it that he had his own plans? Maybe he thought, well, I've done enough service for the Lord. The years I've given him, it's time for myself, for doing my own thing. No, it was none of these. But what it was, was Jonah was a Jew, and he thought that salvation belonged to the Jews. The Assyrians being the enemy of Israel, he was probably secretly rejoicing in the prospect of their downfall. Therefore did not want to preach in case they repented. For Jonah knew God. He describes God as gracious, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and ready to turn from judgment. Jonah's problem was he had a hatred for the city of Nineveh. They, as far as he was concerned, they didn't deserve salvation. And so we see Jonah's downward steps. To Joppa, he bought a ticket, boarded a boat, heading for Tarshish. He deliberately refused to obey what he knew to be the will of God. It tells us he went down into the lower parts of the boat and he fell sound asleep. And as we are familiar with the story, we know the great storm arose. And while the captain and the crew were struggling to keep the boat on course and to cope with the situation, Jonah was lying asleep in the bowels of the ship. He was, we say, he was dead to the world. The world was in turmoil. All was breaking loose round him, but he was unaware of what was happening. And it wasn't until the captain woke him and told him, call upon your God. We're calling upon our God that our God or your God may spare us. And so Jonah is awoken. And then eventually they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. He didn't dispute it. He didn't disagree with it. He didn't argue with it. But again, a man who faces up to the truth as he has in the past. And he explains why he is running and why they're in the storm. And they said, well, what do we do? Jonah says, throw me overboard. And so they threw him eventually overboard after a bit of hesitation, after a bit of trying to save the ship. And as Jonah went into the sea, he thought, this is it. Life is over. This is the end. But God had something more in store for him. And they say, we are told a great fish was there waiting for him. The fish got a meal he didn't appreciate, a meal he couldn't digest, a meal he was glad to get rid of. And Jonah found himself in a situation, in a fate worse than death. Lying in the fish. I tried this afternoon to imagine what it would be like the slime, the smells, the darkness, the uncertainty, the fear and dread that must have grabbed hold of his very soul must have been tremendous. And it lasted three days and three nights. 
But when in the fish, his belly, he remembered the Lord. He called to the Lord, and the Lord heard him, and the Lord answered his prayers. From downward steps, there was upward steps. And he started, he started to retrace the steps where he had gone wrong. Do you know, so often I feel that when we make a wrong move, the best way to readdress it is to go back to the place, the spot where we made the wrong move and start again. Jonah was endeavoring to do that. And Jonah was vomited out upon the dry land. I'm sure the fish breathed a sigh of relief. Jonah breathed a sigh of relief and was glad to have that ordeal over him. And he said, as he had promised God, while in the fish's belly, when he got out, of the, if I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. From disobedience, we see Jonah's obedience. For the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time. Praise God. How gracious is our God. He's a God of the second chance, of the second opportunity. And the word of the Lord came again unto Jonah a second time. What a task lay before him. A journey of over 800 miles and then to preach in the streets of Nineveh. Yet his 40 days preaching in the streets of Nineveh was nothing to the journey he had tried to undertake in fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And the message he brought, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A strange message, but it's the message that God told him that he should preach to the city. Surely the mightiest men in the world are those who know God's will and are courageous in declaring it. Luke records for us the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11 when Jesus said, Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Not that they believed Jonah, but that they believed God. Jonah had done what God had asked him. Jonah had completed the task. Jonah surely should have been happy, glad, relaxed, feeling good about himself. For the very king on the throne, to the very animals in the stall, put on sackcloth and ashes. The people of the city were taking no chances of making a mistake, of missing out. Nobody was to eat or drink, not even the animals, during this time and this period. And they called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord heard. But we see Jonah in chapter 4, full of anger. Jonah obeyed from a powerful sense of duty, but had not entered joyfully into all the mind of the Lord. He was more concerned about a plant than the salvation of a soul. This was the situation as it unfolded in chapter 4. Jonah, he makes his way out of the city. He sits down. He's waiting. He's waiting to see what God's going to do. And I feel very much secretly hoping that God's going to bring judgment upon this city. And as he's sitting and as he's waiting... God and him get involved in a conversation. He's sitting. The sun comes up. No shade. This plant grows. And the leaves of which provide him a shade for which he's grateful. During the night while he slept, 
a worm came and destroyed the plant. The next day he woke up. The sun was strong. The wind was blowing. And he fainted because of the heat and so on. And God spoke to him. Jonah was angry. God, why did you allow the plant to be destroyed? God said, did you, did you plant it? Did you water it? Did you cause it to grow? Jonah had no answer to that. God did. And so he goes on and he says to him, And should not I ha spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than a 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? God explained to Jonah the generosity and the greatness of his reach to the lost. You know, as I think of Jonah and his preaching, he had an experience that every preacher longs for, 100% success. He preached, 600,000 people responded. There was no hacklers. There was nobody saying, I don't accept the message. I don't believe you. They responded positively to the preaching of the word. And yet here we see him in anger because God didn't do what he would have liked God to do and that destroying the city and bringing judgment upon it. What happens next? I would love to know. We're not told. He disappears. Well, we know he wrote the book of Jonah, but what else? And while there are many questions we could ask in respect of Jonah and of his life and of what happened after Nineveh, we have no answers. But while there may be questions we could ask regarding Jonah, there's one question that the book of Jonah asks of the Christian church this evening, and it's the one to which we all have the answer. And it is this, am I, are you, are we on the run? We may say, but who are we? In Acts chapter 16, we are reminded, are we not, of Paul and Silas ministering and of the young lady following him, a soothsayer, fortune teller, whichever you like to call her. And what was she saying? These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. We may at times forget who we are, but Satan doesn't forget who we are. We are the servants of the Most High God. Our job down here is not to sit at ease, but it is to preach the gospel that others may come to find Jesus as Savior and Lord. Surely, a servant, as a servant, we not only speak to God, but he speaks to us. And the question is, what has he said to you and I? He said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. He has said to each and every one of us in similar words, arise, go, to, do, whatever. You alone know the answer to the rest of that sentence. And the challenge this evening is, what will be our response? response? Will it be as Jonah? And if so, why? See, God dealt with Jonah. He repented. 
The psalmist in Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Again, in 1 John chapter 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in 1 Samuel, we're reminded of Samuel speaking to King Saul, in which he said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Again, the writer in Proverbs says, To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Paul, writing in Philippines 3, says these words, But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. And he ha- God is a God of second chance. We look at King David. We look at Jacob. We look at Jonah. We look at Peter. We look at the Apostle Paul. I'm sure the Apostle Paul would love to have changed things, would love to be able to go back and alter things when he thinks of standing at the stoning of Stephen, when he thinks of those who he'd be responsible for committing to prison, those who had lost their lives because of his actions. But he realized he couldn't change the past. You can't take back the words you've spoken. You can't take back the deeds you've done. You can't alter the past. The past is the past. It's in the past. The only thing we can do from the past is learn from it and move on from it. The Apostle Paul was not going to let the past hold him back. If he had, think of the loss to the Christian church in the writings, in the scriptures, in the ministry that was preached all over the land. If he had, but he didn't let the past keep him back. He committed it to the Lord. He apologized. He repented. It's under the blood. It's forgotten about. God has said, I will remember it no more. And he moved on with God. The challenge for us, are we of similar thought and mind? For the difficulty we have, we forgive others, but we can't forgive ourselves. And yet, God says, if we confess, he is faithful. He will forgive Just during this year in particular, I find myself praying for revival. And you know, I was thinking, Lord, no, send somebody, great evangelist, great preacher. And I thank God for everyone who fits into that category and for the work they're involved in. And I no sooner had the words out of my mouth in prayer and God turned it around on me and he says, what's wrong with you? So often we look for others to do what God wants done. And God's looking at us and he says, I want you to do it. You're the one for the job. You're the one for the task. And I have chosen you to do it. We went through a summer program in which the churches in Northern Ireland got involved, conventions, Bible weeks, children's work, fun days, and all the different activities. And leading up to that, as I got the different information, as a pastor, you get an awful lot of information, whether you ask for it or not. How they get your address, I have no idea. 
But as I got the information, I was praying, Lord, bless this particular event and that particular event. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking of the church being motivated, being mobilized, and being involved. And then as the summer progressed, I began to pray, Lord, let it not be a one wonder thing for individuals. That when this event is over, they'll say, I've done my bit. I'll sit back and take it easy. And then we came to September. And of course, my thoughts were, church is back to routine. Cell groups, prayer meetings and all the different things. Sunday school. And I asked myself the question, well, will this autumn term be a bit more of what it was last year? Will it be different? Will it be better? We praise God for what he has done in the past. We praise God for what he did last autumn term. But this is a new term. Will it be the same? Will it be any different? And I'm still drawn to that verse in Isaiah 43. I've made mention of on other occasions. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Many will say it's impossible. God says it's two letters too long, for with him all things are possible. You know, I was counting it up, and I've got my sums right. Counting today, there's 37 days left to the end of the year, if the Lord tarries. 37 days to do what God's asked us to do. 37 days to make a difference to make it different, to make things happen. You know, Pastor Clifford decided that this wall over here needed painting. I'm not saying it does. But if he decided it needed painted, and he had a passion and a desire for this wall to be painted, and he left a tin of paint and a paintbrush sitting there, it doesn't matter how strong his desire and longing would be unless someone is prepared to reach out take hold of that paintbrush, dip it in the tin of paint and put it on the wall, the wall will not get painted. And you know, God wants us to be willing, using the illustration, to reach out, take hold of the paintbrush and tend to the job. God is not interested in our abilities. He's interested in our availabilities. We may say, who am I? But what we need to ask is not who am I, but who is God? The writer in Philippines 4 and 13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Do we want to see new things happen as God does? Then we need to be prepared to rise and go do what God has and will yet tell us to do. One commentator in summing up the book of Jonah wrote the following statement. Few Old Testament books have more obvious application to the contemporary church. It can well be used to help Christians overcome the barrier of his foreignness in evangelistic mission as he is assured of God's love for the world and is well to use the save to reach all lost men. But the book of Jonah does not teach simply willingness to go to a foreign country as a missionary for the reward of being obedient. In point of fact, this is one of the deficiencies the book seeks to correct. 
It is not enough to be obedient to the command, but one must be sympathetic with it. Evangelism is for the sake of the lost and not for the evangelist. One must obey God, but for the right reason. The motive for missions is acknowledgement of God's will, but also obedience to it and agreement with it. I think that's a wonderful statement. One little comment I would make, it speaks of foreign countries. For some, God will take them to foreign countries. For the majority of us, the mission field is where we are. And it's every bit as important as the mission field on foreign shores. God has said, arise, go. You can finish the sentence. The question is, if God says arise and go, will you do it? because God has told you to do it, or will you do it not only because God has told you to do it, but because you're in agreement with it? John 3 and 16, we know what the first verse 16 so well. For God so loved that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we stop there and we say amen to that, and we praise God for that statement. But we need to go on to the second verse. For God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's heart, God's desire, is that no one will end in a lost eternity. He made ample provision in sending his son to pay the price for our sin and the sin of the world. That there is no excuse for anyone ending in a lost eternity. The word of God tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. The challenge for you and I this evening, can he say that of us? Can he say that Yul Chain is a man after God's own heart? That is, his desire and his longings are in tune, are in line with God. If that is the case, then when God says arise and go, we'll not respond as Jonah do and did and try and run away. But we say, yes, Lord. That's what God wants to hear. For when he asks us to arise and go, like the illustration, the paintbrush and the paints already in place, the tools for doing the job are all in place, and he just wants us to be willing to use what he has provided, that his name may be glorified, that his kingdom may be extended. This is the message of the story of Jonah to the Christian church. Thank you.